It is July 20, 2022. A lot of 20s going on in that date. July 20, 2022. It is Wednesday, July 20, 2022. Lawyer Talk <laughs> Roundtable. Norm is back at the table. Missed the Cooperman interview last week, but that's all right. The show must go on. I wish I could have postponed it, but I uh, just had to get that one done. Uh, but Norm is back. We got uh, a roundtable. Brett, Circle 270 Media. He's not here. Didn't make the didn't didn't check in today on that one, but uh, that's all right. He has other obligations. Also, uh, be back next week. Never fear. But again, the show must go on. That's the idea of Lawyer Talk Roundtable. We have these roundtable discussions, and that's what we intend to do today. Norm, you're back. How's it going? Hey, real good. Hey, these these guys need to toughen up a little bit. So sitting outside, I have my RV with a race car trailer hitched up, parked down on High Street right now. I got stuff to do, Steve. Yeah. But I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. I mean, look, I got a full-blown law practice. I got it right upstairs. I could be working. Everybody is slaving away while I'm down here playing at but, the Lawyer Talk Roundtable. But this is important. It's important to be here, and it's important to talk through some of these issues that have come up. And it's important for me to remind everybody that um, I have nothing but love in my heart for my fellow human beings. And um, what's Robert Opperman say down there at the conservative theater that – um, we can disagree without hate. We can disagree without hate. Rob Cooperman. Yeah. Says, Rob uh, Cooperman. Yeah, I'm we, sorry. It's stage right production. But yeah, no, you're right. We, we can disagree without hate. And something else you said before we jump into the meat of this, because I know what we're going to talk about. But, uh, you know, it's important that we do get down here and talk. And, you know, it does. I, I've noticed over the years, and I've said this on the air, on the record, that it sort of opens up parts of your brain that maybe went dormant. Um, sure. It, yeah. It, it forces you to think. It forces you to actually vocalize ideas in the free exchange of thought and communication with others here at the round table. And, you know, when you say it's important, I, I know you're saying it's sort of tongue in cheek, but you mean it too. And it is, it, it really, it's, it's, it's intellectually, psychologically, and I think in every other way satisfying for me. Yeah. I mean, I try to, I try to, uh, address, you know, issues of, of, um, you know, substantial concern with a scientific mind. So I, I try as much as possible. I cer- I certainly have a value system I bring to these discussions, but also, I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to change my mind. Uh, I'm certainly uh, always open to new facts. And many of these stories that are coming up in our discussion today are ongoing stories. And facts will be coming out for, for years, maybe decades. You know, um, I mean, we're still finding things out about World War II that are being discl- declassified. So, uh, you know, have an open mind. Yeah, if you think you know everything, guess what you don't. No. All right. So yeah. what's first on the agenda? I think I know. Well, yeah. So we've had a few guests in here um and you know, this one's kind of quick and it's it's more an expression of my exhaustion. I can only imagine how Secretary of State Jim Petro feels this morning. I I guess yesterday or perhaps Monday, the Ohio Supreme Court rejected for the fifth time the redistricting plan for the congressional districts of the state of Ohio. And the standard in the Constitution is that uh, no party can unfairly be favored under the uh, districting plan. And so, so I just want to make, you know, make a note when, when the Constitution says unfairly favoring so it allows favoring of a political party. After all, 
elections are a political process. There's a political outcome. The word, the I guess the word being interpreted and now uh, striking down for the fifth time the putative plan is unfairly. So how far can you favor a party over another party uh, seems to be the question. And I think that's very ethereal. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how they're going to determine what's fair or unfair about a process that is inherently political. Yeah. I mean, it's, you can, it's never fair. Life isn't fair. There is no equity in the world, despite all these people that think they can establish it. You know, it's like, there's always going to be someone who has more, someone who has less of everything. Yeah. You have more hair than I have, Norm. (laughs) Well, this, this issue about districting, uh, I, I don't remember the case from law school, but one of the very first cases, Steve, you may recall this as a practicing attorney, you may recall this case, but uh, the word gerrymander uh, comes from congressional redistricting cases brought before the brand new Supreme Court when when the country was very young. This is an old issue that the idea that the party that wins in a given state gets to draw these crazy boundaries and you know it's a lot more um ethical today than it used to be um because the 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 districting committee in ohio for example is an equal number of republicans and democrats but yet they keep shooting the plan down yeah and it's funny because you can always draw the lines i mean you you can't say that we're just going to establish what the lines are and never change them because populations move, things change, you know, the society evolves. And then if you can't say that, then, and you, you say you can redistrict when you need to, but it has to be quote fair without a definition of fair. You end up in this, this sort of conveyor belt that we're on uh, where we seem to be getting nowhere. I mean, the, the high Supreme court keeps striking it down. They're not giving enough guidance that uh, on what they will accept, you know, and they're going to say that, well, it's because we're not allowed to, it would breach the judicial obligation, blah, 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 blah. The bottom line is nothing's getting done. And and ordinarily, I like that in government. I like it when the government can't get anything done because that means they're not screwing up because my premise is if the government's doing something, probably screwing it up. Um, But here, something does have to happen. You know, we do have to vote. We do have to have an election. We do have to move forward. Yeah, evidently, this decision is now instructing Petro and the redistricting um, task force to come up with uh, new boundaries for 20 24, but I don't understand how we're going to do 2022. I don't know it well enough to comment other than it just seems like such a frustrating pain in the backside. Yeah. Anyway, I thought I'd bring it up because we had an amazing discussion with uh, Secretary Petro uh, several uh, weeks ago. Yep. And um, wanted to follow through on that. Also want to make a quick note, you know, just fly through a few of these before we get to some meat and potatoes. I'm really delighted to see that the New York deli worker, um, Jose Alba, uh, who uh, stabbed uh, the um, uh, assailant in self-defense when the guy came behind the counter and all the New York City cops, you know, I, I, it, and the guardian angel guy, Curtis Lewa, I heard everybody say that there was a, a definite wall uh, that the, the traditional wall in New York City, if if somebody went behind the counter, that's the phrase, going behind the counter. If, if, if somebody goes behind the counter, the tradition 
the 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 law enforcement in New York City was if somebody goes behind the counter at a deli, a convenience store, a restaurant, all bets are off. Just right there. You go behind the counter. If you're in front of the counter and you got a gun, you have apparently some rights. Once you go behind the counter, they always gave the presumption of innocence to the defender. And in this case, this guy was behind the counter. He was being attacked by two individuals. He stabbed one to death, protecting himself. And in the meantime, he suffered a stab wound himself by the guy's girlfriend. So I'm glad to see him drop charges. What's crazy to me is that that's even a question. Right. You know. Right. There, I, I I can't. I I'm speechless. I'm speechless. So right. if I'm be, if I'm at my office, I'm trying yeah. to put this in some perspective, I'm at my office and somebody comes into my lobby and uh, goes through the outer doors and is in my area, of my office, in a threatening way with weapons or saying "Give me all your money" or 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 threatening harm. It's like the old Clint Eastwood. Well, I shoot the bastard. That's my policy. You know. It's like how is that a question? Yeah. Uh, you're in my space and you're threatening me with serious physical harm. I'm allowed to use serious physical harm or I'm allowed to use serious force or deadly force in response. Yeah. So if, if you know, I, I don't think that this shopkeeper did anything other than meet force with force. I don't think it was unreasonable from what I heard on the news and my, my uh, understanding of it. And I just don't get it. So, you know, the more we condone crime, the more your crime you're going to get. And you know, that's just a fact. You yeah. Know, the more I let, uh, you know, you, you, if I let my kids do whatever they want, they're going to do whatever they want, and it's going the boundaries will expand with their abilities. And I think that's what we're seeing a little bit. And the backlash, you know, it reminds me. I, I use that dirty Harry Clint Eastwood quote, and I watched those movies recently with my kids, uh, <laughs> or one of them anyway, the first one. And you know, it was a whole different era, sort of like the end of the '70s, where you had this um, law and order was was at the forefront of everything we needed to do because there was this craziness going on in the world. There were these snipers down in uh, Texas. There was right. uh, the Zodiac Killer. There was right. um, street crime. You look at pictures of New York City and it was just like a, 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 a killing or a, a, a battle zone, you know? And it, it and, was. And there was this big backlash and movies like Dirty Harry came along yeah. where it's like, you know, we're going to take care of crime once and for all in San Francisco of all places. Um, and I think, I wonder if we're on the cusp of that now. Yeah, I I feel we are. I I you know, it it kind of brings up the next couple of issues, actually the next three issues are are these shooting uh situations and it seems like uh not to bring up Kyle Rittenhouse, but it seems like if the police are either incompetent, Uvalde, Texas, I I mean, I I'm taking the position now that on based on the 77 page report and the video of, of what they were not doing for an hour before entering the room and taking down the shooter. It, it almost makes me sick to my stomach. It makes me sick. to. I mean, that was either they didn't care. And, you know, I hate to use the word cowardice because there were over 400, well, something like 400 police there. And I'm sure there were some very brave police officers there who felt like their hands were tied and they couldn't break the chain of command and just take action. But still there either was cowardice on the scene or incompetence. One of the two, certainly at the leadership level. And I think after Rittenhouse, people are starting to wonder, Hey, like this guy in Indiana, uh, who, who, uh, you know, at the Greenwood mall on Sunday, who, you know, defended the mall goers, a 22 year old guy 
with a handgun defending his fellow mall shoppers from a guy with uh, an assault rifle, if you want to use that description, but some kind of rifle who had killed two, three people, wounded two others, reloading in the men's room, and this guy took him down. Uh, within 15 seconds, and the police chief there in, in, in Greenwood Park Mall, uh, Greenwood, Indiana, is calling this guy uh, beyond what his, what his actions were beyond heroic, and that's a direct quote by the police chief. And you're starting to see, I think, what the left would call vigilantism. But I'm, you know, in the absence of police protection, these constitutional carry laws are starting to provide uh, good citizens with the means to um, interdict yeah. some, some and, of these crimes. And it, I agree with you, but it's not to say that that's the best. No, it's not. You know, right. it, it's I just agree. what's happening. It, it's it's funny. what's happening. I think I'm just going to come out and say it. I think the left often falls into this trap where they want to legislate away human nature. They want to legislate away what what people are going to do either by instinct because they're bad or because they're good, whatever it would be. And, you know, people are going to go commit crimes and you can't just redefine what a crime is and expect the conduct to change. It won't. And, you know, if the, if, if you're going to disincentivize the police from acting either by threatening outrageous lawsuits Every time that uh, that they they every time they do something you don't agree with, and I'm not saying that police should have carte blanche authority. I, I believe in accountability for cops as I do anybody else. Sure, you're a defense attorney, but it's gone so far now that yeah. I think it's what I have seen and heard from talking to my police buddies. The good veteran cops who are close to retirement are taking it. Yeah, and once you take away the good veteran cops, there's nobody left to train the new upcomers, and at the same time. Who wants to go be a police officer right now? Like, who would say that's going to be my chosen career because wow. you know it seems so secure? <laughs> right. It's, it's like wow. you don't want to do it. No. So now, what's going to happen? The population is going to emerge and fill that void, like it or not. Whether you're allowed to carry a gun or not, people are going to start doing it. And you know, if you have corruption in the police, same thing. If the police aren't doing their job, then the people will, and they're not going to do it as well as a trained police officer. Fortunately, and hats off to this guy. Yeah. He did. And you know, from what I read, it's like. He didn't really have any significant training as law enforcement. He didn't have any significant training in the military. Um, and I'm sure he maybe, I, I, it sounds like he had taken some tactical classes and, and learned how to use his weapon and used it effectively here. But, you know, thank God he was there because nobody else was. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, to, to answer one question that I heard it was brought up on The View. I don't watch that show, but I was reading online that Sonny Hostin uh, of The View uh, made some kind of comment that uh, because that particular mall had a no gun policy that this guy's in some kind of legal trouble. His firearms specialist attorney uh, explained, however, that the mall's policy doesn't have the force of law until the person violating that policy is asked by the mall to leave the premises. And then if they don't, they're then they are guilty of trespassing. Yeah. So the, you know, I don't know. I, I answered this on the blitz this morning too. It's like, I don't know for sure what their um, rules are out there. And I, I did hear that comment from his attorney that look, he wasn't uh, the way the law works out there. The posting means that if he's asked to leave and doesn't uh, because he has his firearm, well then that's trespassing and that's a separate crime. Um, I don't think that would necessarily work that way in posted areas here in Ohio, but um, even so you would ask the question, is self-defense a defense to those regulatory laws? And that's not obvious. You know, it's not necessarily yeah. clear. Right. You know, I don't know that that's been decided one way or another. 
Um, but you would say in response to that, I don't give a crap. Yeah. I, look, if you're not going to f- protect my, protect me or others around me, I'm going to do it myself and I'll break that law. And you know, this again, human nature is going to emerge. It's interesting. I used to watch, I used to watch a show. Um, um, who wants to be a millionaire? Oh yeah. Right. And you got those three lifelines. Yeah. Ask the audience was one. And you know, it, it always fascinated me because that seemed to be the one that was the right the most times. Hmm. And it's because you take a poll of, of lots and lots and <clears throat> lots of people. The majority of the people are going to have a certain position on it and they're going to get it right. And you know, it's, it's not always going to be right. It's not always going to be perfect, but left to our own devices, the people tend to get our, their needs met. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that's what's happening. I would just like to interject and, and, and give you the platform here to, to also mention in both the Jose Alba case of this, this uh, I, I think they call them bodegas, uh, the delicatessens in New York, um, and in the, uh, the, the young man in, uh, in Indiana, Eli Dickin, uh, in both cases, these two individuals who were protecting life found the need to get a legal representation like immediately and yeah. go fund me, uh, money, uh, you know, to, to try to meet their, uh, legal expenses. So it is no small thing, is it Steve to, uh, either take a life or to injure somebody or to even brandish a weapon in defense of innocence. You, you, you are probably going to get grand juried. You're probably going to get studied real hard for charges you're you're probably gonna you you may spend a night in a pokey. It's no small thing, is it, to use a gun? We have this constitutional carry in Ohio now, and it's no small thing, right? I I just yeah. would like you to. What does a person? So you find yourself, you know, in a situation where you feel like, oh my God, people are going to get hurt, and here I am, I'm I'm armed, and you decide to take action. What are you in for, Steve? You you. You know, give us some advice or give our listeners some advice on perhaps what they need to do ahead of time. Do they need to join one of those prepaid legal plans or what What are you in for, man? Well, you know, you, there's a lot to unpack there. And it used to be under the old uh, constitution before constitutional carry, which isn't really constitutional carry, but you don't need to take a permit or get a class and have a permit now. Um, I would go, I, I've spoken at some of those classes and uh, Derek DeBross, a good friend of mine, a colleague, uh, he teaches those classes a lot and he would bring me in to sort of give my insight into it. And at the end, they always tell people, look, right now, once this class is done, while the iron is still hot, find a lawyer, find a lawyer and get that guy's number in your phone or get that gal's number in your phone. So when you get into a problem, if you have a problem, uh, heaven forbid, you have somebody to call and get quick legal advice. The other advice we always gave is don't make any statements. You don't need to tell the police right away what happened. You just don't need to do it. And it's funny. I'm working on a case right now where this is relevant. My client had to use self-defense in defense of others, deadly force. And he's, it, it, we're worried he's going to be chastised a little bit and criticized a little bit for not making a perfect statement two hours afterward. He was under extreme emotional stress and trauma. Um, you know, the adrenaline was wearing off. Uh, and the professional psychologist that would advise police officers would say, get a few nights of sleep under your belt before you go talk about it. And, wow. and they will say, I can read you the reports where they would say, well, you know, well, how's that, that going to look bad? Yeah, maybe. It's going to look worse if you screw up gotcha. and, and, and say things incorrectly because you just make a mistake. And, you you know, it's hard for us looking back as armchair quarterbacks to say, 
we would how could that possibly he screw up that factor detail but it happens and it, and it happens i think often in sort of the temporal unfolding of events yeah what happened first and that can be critical in the context of when and how you use deadly force and whether it's justified so i would tell people there's a long-winded way of saying you're exactly right if you do use deadly force don't take it for granted that you're going to get a big standing ovation yeah that it's going to be like on tv you're a hero it's not. These people are defending themselves. They spend thousands of dollars on lawyers, and they may even have to go, like you said, to a grand jury and even defend themselves in a courtroom at trial. In, in one situation, I went up with Derek, and we talked at a class. I, I came in immediately, and I said, all right, give me, uh, give me a show of hands. Who wants to uh, be a volunteer? I got a hand. Who wants to be another? So I put the guy who uh, volunteered, brought him up front, separated the room off front and back, and I put a counsel table. Like, if, like it was a courtroom. And I said, here, you sit right next to me. Derek, you're the prosecutor. You just killed somebody. And people are looking at me funny. I said, no, no, look, I just finished this case, folks. I just had a case where somebody had to defend themselves twice, once on the street, once in the courtroom, charged, indicted on murder. Wow. Where the consequence was 18 years to life if we lost. Now, he won. Walked him out of the courtroom, not guilty. But it happens. Don't think it can't happen. Yeah. You know, and, you know, there, there's a lot of protections in the law, but the theory behind it is the jury is the final protector. Right. A prosecutor can choose. And if you have a prosecutor in this politically charged environment that doesn't like guns, doesn't like vigilant, quote, vigilante, I put it in quotes because a lot of times it's BS, um, you know, you could be indicted and charged and have to go into a courtroom and defend yourself and think six figures. Yeah. And I guess the politi- political pressure in this New York situation, you know, with the with uh, the mayor coming out in favor of this guy defending himself, the mayor who was a transit cop himself, Eric yeah. Adams, yeah. Uh, said in his que- in his mind, no question this guy had the right to defend himself. And just, you know, this was an outrageous miscarriage of ju- justice by this very liberal prosecuting an attorney in, in New York City. Yeah, it's crazy because then in New York City, they're not prosecuting like burglaries. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's right, like, it, it, right. It's like, it's, and this is, this is a... It's like we can do nothing in a vacuum. Yeah. So if we make a decision as a city, we're not going to prosecute burglaries and robberies. Well, then what's going to happen? People are going to protect themselves and people are going to like more people will get hurt by you not prosecuting them than they would if you did. Because you're going to one, that you're going to get the bad guys Two, You're going to deter others. Eventually, people will know that they can get away with this. They're doing it in California all over smash and grabs and CBSs and everywhere else. It's crazy. Well, and and I I believe you know, one of our heroes, Dr. Uh, Thomas Sowell has said something to the effect. I, I wish I knew the quote exactly, but, uh, if you don't, if you don't have uh, free, if you don't have use of your property, if property is denied from you, then you don't have Liberty. Yeah. So our f- fundamentally, this is inconsistent with the Marxist agenda. We have individual rights, individual freedom, individual responsibility, and the right to own property. Right. The Marxist doctrine is not that. No. It's a collective. Yeah. It's you don't have a right to own. There is no individual. Because it's to not property. yours. Right. It's not yours. So, and I want to just bring things to people's attention. When you started hearing this, these notions that w- the government is going to uh, prohibit landlords from collecting rent. Yeah. They're depriving you of your property. Yeah. That's the government saying, no, there's this collectivism and you, you shouldn't be able to collect rent. Yeah. Or 
Uh, we're not going to prosecute property crimes where people come in and steal your stuff. You have no individual right to property. This is very fundamental and yeah. it's, it's biblical even. And yeah. you know, we have this notion of a right to property and a right to freedom to protect it and a right of a, like we give the government, we give up some of our freedom to the government to give them the ability to protect us to protect our property. And the government's doing the opposite. So now we're in this weird seesaw. Yes, we are. So do we do it ourselves? Are we not allowed to? And then if we do, are we going to be prosecuted? This is this is collectivism. This is Marxism. Yeah, I mean, think about it. I guess I am going there. This 17-year-old Rittenhouse guy is, is protecting a car lot, you know, at the invitation of the car lot owner because the police are back at the barricades you know, blocks away from the car lot. Not doing anything about it. Not right. doing anything. In the, everything's on fire. And you've got this kid out there, you know, with, with, with a rifle. And he is, he is the thin blue line between chaos and order and, instead of the police. And there's a lot of this is what happens to go around in that Rittenhouse scenario. Yeah. But it starts with the policy. It does. It starts with the policy. Right. Rittenhouse wouldn't have been there no. if the government was doing its it's duty, hundred percent. Not its job, but it's, it's duty. duty, right? That's the bargain. Yeah, and Rudy, I, Rudy in New York City, uh, the f- former mayor Rudy Giuliani, he had that policy that they wouldn't even tolerate graffiti. Yeah, they would. They if if you reported graffiti, the city, I guess, code people would immediately go out there and issue an order or take action themselves. To, to repair broken windows, graffiti, whatever it was, because Rudy knew that that was a germ. That was you, the backlash. Right? You let that happen, then the next, then it's incremental. Then, then the next yep. more serious crime happens, right up until murder. And you can say so. Here, here's the here's the problem, the, the the inherent flaw of the criticism of that. And you know, Julie, I didn't do it perfectly, but here's the inherent flaw in the criticism, which is. You know, that's it's desperately impacting a certain race or, you know, you're going to have uh, discrimination or this or that or the other. You know, these people are, are downtrodden, so we shouldn't charge them with crimes. But what you're doing, and this is a this is a Thomas Sowell concept as well, sort of this idea that uh, nothing happens in a vacuum, that, you know, we if you let that go, if you let those, that kind of behavior go, um, it's going to result in more of it. Yeah. And more of it. And more of it. Yeah. And it's going to result then in the people backlashing against it and then more people getting hurt than would have otherwise. And, you know, you, you can't just say that that individual thing is, uh, we're not going to enforce that be, without considering what the impact of that decision is going to be in right. the big picture. And, it, you know, it's, um, it, it breeds more of it and, and that's worse, right? It creates more poverty. It creates more crime. It, it just, you can, right. you can say it's not crime because you're not defining it as crime, but it's still crime by, right. by what we know is right and wrong. Right. And, uh, it, it just is, uh, it's a, it's a gross distortion of the governmental responsibilities under Locke. We had this agreement with the government. You know, this is where our founders looked, John yeah. Locke. Yeah. And they, they, Locke expressly rejected Hobbes. And Locke said, no, we're going to, we have individual rights and the government's job is to protect us, protect our rights. And that's it. You know, it doesn't need to do any more than that. It doesn't give us the rights. In fact, God does that or whatever your version of God is. The government's job is to protect our rights. And you can say, well, how are they going to do that? Protect yours and not his. No, no, no. We know what these rights are, the right to property. And the government's job is to protect that from norm coming and doing something and taking mine improperly against the law. And, you know, it's like this, 
again, it's just fundamentally inconsistent with the authoritarian viewpoint on things. Yeah. Well, that's probably more than you wanted. No, no. I mean, I, I, it's important to understand that there are philosophical foundations for that, that, that form the pillars and the, the support system for the law. The law didn't just spring up out of nowhere. You know, you and I going to law school, we studied, you know, cases of, I, I guess you would almost call it natural law, where, where it even predates, you know, the modern court system. And it was, you know, Hammurabi or it was just uh, a tribal law. And, you know, certain things have been illegal forever, like murder. I mean, murder was never sanctioned, I, I don't believe, in any culture. And so that predates the American legal system, and the American legal system is built on these fundamental human constructs and understandings of what nature is like, what what God handed us, you know, our our liberty and our need to protect ourselves from with having inherited these natural and God-given rights. Well, and let me let me just get one more point out there, and we can move on and shift gears into fourth gear, whatever it would be. But it's um, I, I read this book called uh, I think it was Ordinary Men or Ordinary I think it was Ordinary Men, and it was about the uh, the 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 folks who were enlisted by the Nazis to carry out the final solution or to gather up the Jews and shoot them, basically shoot them, kill them. And, you know, the guy, the author studied the psychology of that sort of uh, like, how does that happen? Like, how, how does that possibly happen? And, and mostly they were the guys who were the old World War One vets who would then become the constables of the towns or the leaders of the towns. And they would just go into the different towns and say, look, you're, you're too old to fight in the front, but we're going to enlist you to do this. And, you know, they even had like a, any man who doesn't want to do this, please step forward. And like two, maybe one did. Some like took half a step to see like was anybody else stepping <laughs> forward. And and a lot of people just sort of reticently stayed back. So it, And it might sort the way you would think. Like a couple people really enjoyed it. Most people actually abhorred it, uh, just didn't really know how to resist. And, and you know, everybody was doing it type of thing. And, and a few people just couldn't do it. One of the leaders just was actually became physically ill, couldn't do it. And – and later on, there was some afterwards written by other psychologists. I don't remember who said this, so I'm not going to even try to give credit. It's in the book. And it was a quote. I actually wrote it down on a little scrap of piece of paper. It still sits on my kitchen counter like a little, I tore it off a, a legal pad like that. And it's about that size, you know, a small little corner. And the quote just struck me. And I still think about it almost every day. And the quote was, moral unburdening was found in the collective identity. Wow. And it was just like, holy <laughs> crap. Isn't that insightful? Yes. So you come up like the Marxists do with this collective agenda. It's good for the whole. Why wouldn't you get the shot, Norm? Right. It, it only works if everybody gets the right. vaccination. It's good for the whole. Right. Once you have that collective identity, right. the morality that would otherwise underpin our Western society is unburdened. You, you, you shed the burden of having to follow the morality that we know sure. that is inherent in us. Because in the collective identity, you have this common goal that becomes the most important thing that you could ever do. And the psychology is fascinating. I, I don't even pr pretend to know it. And these guys are still debating it. But it's like, how is it that 10 guys will do something that one wouldn't do by himself? Yeah. You know, how is that? 
Yeah. And, you know, how is it that everybody here would stand on the shoulders of these giants and say, I would never have had slaves? Yet they did. People did. And they knew it was wrong and they still did it. Yeah. It, it, it's such a fascinating subject to me. And But if you have this, and that's going the other way, right? So you, yeah. can, you can unburden your morals of slavery because everybody did it in the South. Yeah. You can unburden your morality of forcing people to get the vaccination, even if you have to put them in jail and they lose their jobs, because that's the goal of the day. You know, it's such a... It's such an insightful quote that I, I actually filter a lot of stuff through it these days as I analyze problems. Yeah, that's um, – I remember hearing interviews with uh, Eli Wiesel, the, the author of – the great author of Night, the, um, his memoir of, the, of being in a concentration camp as a child, and – it it was to him his conclusions were very similar to this books you you're, you're talking about the books uh, conclusion that it was the very um normality of the people that haunts him uh, that haunted him he's he's deceased now the the very idea that normal if you will average even god-fearing regular people, not people that you would look at and say, oh God, that, you know, over there's John Dillinger or uh, Billy the Kid or Adolf Hitler or somebody who I can clearly pick out as a criminal, but but somebody who's just the guy down the street. Mm-hmm. And that with enough peer pressure, uh, the, the very, the, the scary part about evil is how it, how it can be found in what you would think of as good people. So how does that square, you know, unless, you know, Western values can square that. They, the Western values premised upon biblical that's, values would say that right. we all are born with inherent sin. We all right. are born with this inherent imperfection. Right. And our life's achievements should be to understand that, do our best to overcome it. Right. And we have salvation elsewhere. Right. I'm not going to go religious on it. But, no, no. But Jordan Peterson, for example, says the line between good and evil runs right through the heart of every human being. Yeah, we all have the capability, mm-hmm. and it's the strength of character. It's the uh, it's the willingness, I guess, to take an incoming round for your value system that separates those who would step into the breach and not do something evil that they know they're going to suffer a consequence for it. Yep, and it- that's that's the difference. It really that's where courage is found. And if we create a society where individual responsibility doesn't matter and only the good of the collective, Yeah. then you get exactly that. You have a society where individual responsibility doesn't matter. You can shed the burden of that morality and just do whatever's in favor of the collective and well, say, yeah, it was worth it. The, the good of the whole is better. You know, the needs sure. of the many outweigh the individuals here. So we well, can just then, do whatever we need to do. And, and then you get things like the final solution and euthanasia and you get, you know, unfettered abortion, somebody, you know, in vitro, oh, Down syndrome. Well, that life isn't worth saving. Let's discard that life. And yet, you know, there are people with Down syndrome that, that are married, that that have very full lives, that work. Right. They have individual worth and yeah, value. Absolutely. And, you know, even if you don't believe in God, in somebody's yeah. eyes, you know, there's a human being that has individual worth. And if yeah. you don't, if you discount that, you put yourself on top of some pedestal that you get to know yeah it's so insane to me well you get to be you know you get to be dr mengala 
you know, or Adolf Eichmann at the train station and wave people, you know, into you either this line way, you go or way. this line. You exit. got blue eyes, blonde hair, yeah. and you're good. Oh, you're, you're over good. here. We, you know, we'll work you to death for a while and then you're gone. Or, or you're, we're going to immediately send you to the ovens and, you know, you, it starts to just become a mechanical thing. And even within that, you have corruption. Like, even though oh, sure. you, right. Norm, you swarthy-looking guy, right. um, I made every other swarthy-looking guy go to the camps. But you know what? I know your dad, and sure. uh, he and I used to play cards together, so I'm going to let you guys, you're, you get to live. I mean, like, even within their structure, sure. it, was, it was inherently, like, within the evil, it was corrupt. Oh, absolutely. It, yeah, they had the they had these German, the, 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 the Nazi party, had these Jewish blood laws with that you had to go back so many generations to be a member of the Nazi party with proof that your ancestors back to your great, 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 whatever wasn't Jewish. And evidently there was a file on Hitler that perhaps he, you know, had somebody in the wood pile who was Jewish so many generations before. And uh, they hid that fact from the of public. Of course, like how many of those bastards? I mean, look at look at yeah. how stringent that standard was. It's yeah. impossible. It's impossible, and it's it's meaningless. And it, it, it meant ridiculous. something to them, but yeah, no, it's all for show. It's all virtue. Yeah. So anyway, all right. Well, those um, I think those are important discussions. I think if we don't talk about our foundations, uh, then we don't know how we got here. Um, speaking of which, um, another uh, case of uh, law and order. Um, is this uh, the situation with this uh, national story? President Biden had mentioned that because of, or implied very strongly, because of the Dobbs case that overthrew Roe v. Wade, that a a ten year old in Ohio who was raped and impregnated uh, had to go to the state of Indiana because Ohio law. Uh, subsequent to the uh, overturning of Roe, supposedly compelled this uh, victim to have to go to Indiana for a medical procedure, uh, clearly in the interest of the mother, in this case, a child uh, who was nine when the rape happened, 10 when the abortion occurred. And our our Attorney General, Dave Yost, uh, made some comments that he uh, had no information on it. This is going back a couple of weeks, and it is since it since has turned out that the story um, is true. The legal, um, uh, the putative legal claim that Ohio would not per- permit uh, a a termination of a pregnancy uh, for the medical safety of the mother is not true. That is not you. The ten year old could have had the procedure in Ohio. I have not followed the case in detail, but Steve, I, I think you have. Can you bring us up to speed and tell us uh, maybe some of the facts now that have come out and really where the law is on this uh, going over a state line to get an abortion? Yeah, that's such an interesting case. I, I can't say I followed it uh, closely, but I do know a thing or two about these kind of investigations and where they go and, and how they work. And, you know, when I first, when the news first broke, What's interesting about this, and I think why it garnered attention, is because the pol- the politicians sort of stood on it as a soapbox to say, see, we told you, this is why uh, we should never have overturned Roe v. Wade, because now there's this poor kid in Ohio, 10 years old, pregnant by rape and incest, or both, and uh, can't get an abortion, has to have that kid. 
and then, you know, immediately everybody was saying, even Dave Yost was interviewed and was like, I don't know anything about this. And and I heard the everybody was saying Biden, Biden lied about it and the politicians are lying. They're just using it. They're making it up, yada, yada, yada. And I remember thinking to myself, even when Yost came out and said he hadn't heard anything about it, I remember thinking to myself, well, why would Yost know about it? Because I'm thinking, well, I know how these investigations happen. I mean, why would anybody know about that investigation other than the police investigating it? In in the the in the immediate players. I mean, it's not like there's a kid who gets raped and who some cop or or somebody's job is to phone up Dave Yost and say, by the way, you know, we've got another one. And sadly, it's it's it happens. You know, those allegations happen a lot. Um, and then I got to thinking, it's like, how in the hell is this public at all that some ten year old had an abortion? How is that getting out? Like, isn't, isn't that a HIPAA problem? And, you know, they didn't identify the 10 year old necessarily, but you know, in, in practical terms they did. I mean, because if it's true that a 10 year old got raped and pregnant, it's not that hard to find that in the context of a state because sooner or later, if it's true, there's going to be a crime. Um, and you know, lo and behold, after everybody came out and said their piece, you know, the, on the one side that uh, wanted to bang that drum was saying, no, there's a 10 year old can't get an abortion. And it's so it's this travesty of Dobbs, and then the other side saying, well, this is all political bullshit. You know, we, we don't even see that case. I remember, you know, lo and behold, there was a case and it was eventually filed. And uh, the defendant was charged here in Columbus, Ohio, with raping, I think, a girl in the house. I don't know if it's his wife's daughter or his girlfriend's daughter, but uh, is accused of raping the daughter. And in fact, uh, admitted it or admitted it, at least confessed on some level to some crimes. Um and then the case was charged. The guy appeared in court. Bond was set. I think it was ridiculous. It was a high bond. Um, and then the next sort of big thing I saw that was that people were making political waves about is the judge said, well, I don't find this to be a case where bond, no bond is appropriate. Because there's some cases where they say, we're just going to hold this person without bond. Most cases, that doesn't happen. All right. And, and uh, people on the right should listen. Like when they say, well, I can't believe this judge would ever find that this was a situation where no bond was appropriate. It's like, yeah, but they never find that. that that's There aren't that many situations like that. Um, you know, because you could say, Norm, if you have $20 million, if I set a million dollar bond, that's nothing to you. You can just write the check. But if you're broke and have no money, a million dollar bond might as well be 500 million because you don't have that either. You're not getting out. So to say no bond is a pro or no bond this isn't a no bond situation is to say that, all right, you know, a million dollar bond is the functional equivalent of not having a bond. So that I sort of can debunk a little bit. Um, and then, you know, the guy got charged and he was supposed to get charged and he should be charged. And now the government has to endeavor to prove that case. And in Ohio, if you have sex and there's, there's two things, right? we have sexual contact and sexual conduct. Contact is touching of an erogenous zone, believe it or not. So if I, if it's a girl and I touch her breasts or her butt or some places like that, that would be an erogenous zone. That would be um, um, contact. Conduct is some sort of penetration. Um, and it doesn't have to be with a penis. It can be digital. It can be with a, a toy, a sex toy. It can be with your tongue. I mean, it can be uh, any sort of penetration. And it doesn't, it could be your mouth. It could be a vagina. It could be an anus. You know, it doesn't. Uh, it uh, it doesn't really specify. Well, here clearly there was some sexual conduct if this little girl got pregnant by this guy. Um, now to me it's just a normal case. I mean, to me the guy's been charged. He's being held with a ridiculously high bond. He's not going to get out. 
the case is going to be defended. I guess I would bet he has no money, and he's going to have uh, the public defenders doing their best to represent this guy and make sure that justice is served and he doesn't get too much for what he's done or too little for what he, well too much for what he's done, and to make sure that the government can prove its case and it's not doing something it shouldn't. Uh, and he'll probably lose if it's true that he impregnated a ten year old girl, and they can prove that. Uh, and it's like it, it, it's what should happen. Then the politicians get involved, announce this thing. So you know, yeah. And, and now about the abortion, I don't. I, I as I told you, we were talking off the air a little bit. And my initial reaction to this is, all right. I wonder why they went to Indiana. Like, who, like whose decision was this, and how did that happen? And then how did it happen to get to a doctor who's a, a pro-choice doctor who who is going to then broadcast this? Right. And I, I'd be curious to know how that happened because I think it is true, and Dave Yost, our attorney general, has said, and I think it is true that no matter what the situation, if you you can get an abortion or terminate a pregnancy in Ohio if if it's medically uh, detrimental to the mother to deliver, and certainly a ten-year-old can't be delivering no. a child. You know that that's not good. Yeah. So I, I think that under Ohio law, and Yost has said it, whether he just said that for political reasons or he said it because he meant it, I think probably both. Um, she could have terminated the pregnancy right here in Ohio, and it would have just gone on without fanfare. Um, so I'm curious about the decision to take it to a certain doc in Indiana who would then broadcast it. Yeah. That has some political, I have political suspicions about it. It also has some possibly um, personal motivations on the part of the mother. And I don't mean the 10-year-old mother, but her mother, the adult mother of this 10-year-old who has come out publicly and made statements that her boyfriend could not possibly be the father she rejects that as a possibility, and yet he has, according to the Columbus Police Department, he has admitted in questioning um, uh, under arrest uh, that he, he admitted on at least two occasions, according to the police, that he did inappropriately um, have contact with the child. But yet the mother is not having that. Yeah. So I wonder you know, since she's obviously has custody of her daughter, it was her choice as the adult, not the, not the, not the child's choice. It was the mother of the child's choice to go to Indiana. Was she trying to uh, hide this incident from local police? I I don't know what the motivation. Yeah. So, but I'm speculating. Yeah. And this is great because I think what we, what the, 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 ultimate lesson here is let's wait and see. But while we're speculating, it could be that it could be that mom wanted to conceal the bad behavior of her boyfriend and rug sweep this thing and go get the girl an abortion in Indiana and not tell anybody. And then as soon as the the doc in Indiana sees this, she's going to be a mandatory reporter. And I understand she was and did report the thing within three days. And somehow the white house politicizes this and naturally the media then goes berserk you know they want to find out well who is this girl did it really happen and all of that so somehow she gets an abortion and then the white house almost immediately finds out about it 
It's, I, I find that abhorrent that yeah. the White House, I don't, I don't yeah. care. And if the Republicans would have done it, if the situation reversed, I'd be equally pissed. The, the president has no business jumping into this mess. Absolutely. But um, so the doc was a mandatory reporter and reports and then, but then it gets sort of publicized and that's, that's what bugs me. So it's back to my original question. It's like, I wonder why they went to Indiana to get the abortion. Was yeah. it a political agenda? Was it mom trying to conceal a crime? Yeah. Was it something else that we don't know? But I will say this, and I, I try to do this with everything that I hear on the news regarding allegations. Wait and see what the evidence is. Yeah. Let's wait and see. Because if anybody's out there saying I would never confess to a crime I didn't commit, yeah, right. You know, that's sort of like what we were talking about with uh with I would never be the guy that's lining up to go round up the Jews. Yet all these people did it. So I, I don't know you can't just say that without giving it a lot more thought as to how or why these people would do it. Sure. You can't say I would never confess to a crime I didn't commit without understanding how and why it happens, because it does. And here I think there was a language barrier which could have contributed to that. Here uh, there might be an intellectual barrier that it corresponds with the language barrier that contributes to it. And understand also something else is that the police aren't there to do anything other than to get you to confess. You know, they, they, they have techniques that they use and employ to try to get their man. Um, you know, it's called the – maybe it's the nonviolent f- – present equivalent of banging people with a phone book. You know, they, they use tactics in their interview techniques that are designed to get people to confess to crimes and it catches it. It, it throws out a dragnet that might be a little bit broad. Gotcha. So we should hold off and not feel like this guy's guilty until we really know that we don't you know, know that we don't know it for sure. A I DNA, guess. DNA analysis. If there is evidence that they can, uh, that they can uh, apply DNA uh, testing to that would seal the deal. Yeah, that would seal the deal. And I, I also, you know, I'm working on one of these cases right now where my client was convicted and wrongfully. Wow. I, I, w- I would say with as much certainty as I could ever, as certain as I could ever be in such a situation that this gentleman is not guilty. He was wow. accused. Uh, he was convicted after a jury trial. Wow. And there, in these cases, I always say this. It's like you can have, you get no quarter in cases like when you're defending cases like this, you, like if ordinarily uh, you can just accept that the DNA lab did it right, you can't do it in these kinds of cases. If ordinarily you would accept that you wouldn't confess to crimes that you didn't commit, you can't just say that and take it as a given in these types of cases. And there's a reason for that. And the U.S. Supreme Court, or federal courts and lots of courts looking back and reviewing them sort of come up with this logic is that these cases are emotionally charged at the outset. They grab your guts and squeeze because it's so abhorrent, the thought that a little girl could be raped by a grown man or a little boy could be raped by a grown man or vice versa, a grown woman or whatever the hell the gender is these days. Yeah. You know, that that's something that offends us to our core. Yeah. We are willing as a society, in my experience defending cases, innocent people, we are willing to forego all the normal standards of proof because we feel like this is such a horrible crime. It's not unlike the moral unburdening and the collectivism, right? So it's like these yeah. are things that are so abhorrent that we can justify. Maybe bending the rules or now bullshit. You know, I don't care what the DNA says. This guy's guilty. Yeah. Um, he would just castrate him right now. Yeah, yeah. And, the, you know. This is how we got lynchings. This is how we got lynchings. And burning uh, witches yeah. after a, after a uh, kangaroo court trial. Yep. And it, 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 I, I recently wrote a brief on this. And, and, you know, my conclusion was something like this. It's like it's. It, it, there's this perception that when you get the guy convicted that that's going to satisfy 
the public need for justice, but it does just the opposite if it's premised upon uh, less than what would normally be required. Yeah. You know, if the standards have to apply across the board. Yeah. And just because it's a child rape accusation doesn't mean that you can forego those standards. It doesn't mean you can just jump to assumptions. Pretty good and, Pretty good book written about this, To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. It's very similar, right? Yeah. And yeah. In, in, in the day, it was right on. It's oh, what we're talking about. Take yeah. an unpopular cause yeah. and try to bend the rules to get the guy convicted. Yeah. And, you know, do that at your own jeopardy. You know, this is uh, this is the old Thomas More yeah. uh, man of all seasons argument. You know, yeah. sooner or later, the devil turns back on you. Yeah. And uh, when you let those rules go, you let those safeguards go um, for the sake of getting your man in this case, even if guilty, then sooner or later, when you need those safeguards, they're gone. You're going to think, what the hell happened? But uh, no, I, but now that said, we all have our opinions. And, you know, if a guy confessed or at least allegedly confessed and they have a baby, or the products of a conception, uh, they're, that, that's probably preserved and saved. Um, there'll be DNA testing, and if it matches, they're going to be able to prove their case. Yeah. And right. if it doesn't match, you're going to be thinking, glad we tested that. Right, right. You know, because, be because we only want the guilty party, uh, obviously, right. to do time or whatever the consequences are. Uh, we we don't want an innocent guy. If her boyfriend is, is innocent, we, I mean, who would want an innocent guy, you know, just because we got to get this done quick? That's ridiculous. And what I always say, people ask, like the number one question I get asked is criminal defense lawyers. Like, how do you represent those dirty, rotten, dirtbag, scumballs, right. criminals, et cetera? And, sure. you know, my response is almost always the same. It's like, ah, oh, those are the easy ones. Yeah. What if right. the guy's not guilty? Yeah. Right. And, you know, it's, it'll stop you in your tracks when you think about that, because right. then try to sleep at night when you're waiting on a jury verdict and you've got an innocent client that somebody is trying to prosecute. Um, and anybody who thinks that that doesn't happen, all you got to do is just go Google it. Yeah. The, 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 uh, for non-attorneys uh, out there, uh, what Steve is saying, if I can be the Steve whisperer, uh, what Steve is saying is, you know, it, our system works best. When you have a very, um, uh, you have a very robust defense to meet that very robust prosecution, so it's truly a meeting of equals. It's an arm's length transaction in front of a jury or a judge. That's when our system really works, and that's what gives you the feeling and the assurance that justice is served. If you if you have somebody who's representing a a, a terrible, you know, criminal, and 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 that guy does a he or she does an awful job representing that criminal. Then you'll always have this feeling: was that person really guilty? There will always be this nagging feeling that the real perp got away with it, while somebody did a, an inadequate job of defending the person accused. And so, you know, to to have a a good court system. You want the very best kind of defense, even for people that you are pretty sure did the crime. You you still want them to have a vigorous defense. Yeah, it's, it's like, important. It's like having an asterisk by Mark McGuire's name. You know, right? It's like he's right. yeah, he hit the home runs, but but yeah, right. You know, I wonder how much that contributed. Yeah. In, so in, I always in, said that about the OJ trial. Yeah, I'm glad OJ had really good attorneys. I just wish the prosecutors were a little better. Yeah, and it's funny. There's been a couple documentaries I watched recently on the OJ, and it gave, gave me pause. It gave me pause about 
maybe, and it wasn't necessarily that OJ was innocent, but it wasn't what the prosecutor's theory was either. And, uh, you know, they suggested another guy was there. They suggested that there, believe it or not, there was a serial killer operating next door to Nicole Brown Simpson's residence. Yeah. Well, Steve, what got me, his socks had blood of, of Ron and Nicole on it, but the socks were not permitted into evidence because the chain of custody thing. I well, sure. Yeah, no, and there was other blood evidence, and there were things like that, but this guy's theory wasn't that O.J. was innocent, but it was rather that somebody else was also involved. I see, okay. And maybe O.J. actually paid this guy to go shake up Nicole a little bit, and Ron Brown, or uh, what's his name, uh, Ron... Um, Can't remember. Um, he was the waiter. Goldman. Ron Goldman. Goldman. Yeah, he was the waiter yeah. from the restaurant. And Nicole was involved in some stuff. You know, she was involved in narcotics and she was partying. She was, you know, it's like, and Goldman maybe was uh, uh, selling Coke and, do, and selling drugs. You know, there there was more, a little more behind the scenes. Okay. And, you know, the guy's theory of the documentary, which I give no credit to other than I'm just talking yeah, about it. Yeah, sure. Was that, look, because everybody wanted OJ so badly, because they, they, the prosecution, the government, they wanted this to be a certain way. They sort of look the other way at other possible uh, uh, facts that could have happened. Yeah. You know, other possible scenarios. Yeah. And they didn't necessarily not involve OJ, but this guy's theory was a good one, that OJ was there for a while. The the serial killer guy he hired yeah. um, sort of went too far when Ron showed up. I see. Okay. OJ bolts. Okay. Gets the hell out of there. Okay. The other guy then sticks around because he is he had screwed he had had sex i think or at least had some sort of social relationship with nicole and uh you know there's even a suggestion that he might have known uh, the security code who knows but there's a there was a premise at trial that nicole was killed well after ron was something about ice cream melting or something and uh you know so it's not and it was the kind of evidence that if i'm defending the case i realize that it's way too little to draw a huge conclusion on but it's also it's like Oh, that's interesting. You yeah. Know, I, I can maybe sink my teeth into that. And it wasn't that OJ was was innocent because he actually hired somebody to go do some bad stuff, which would have made, made him guilty of murder. Yeah. He, and it yeah. probably would have gotten him convicted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just goes to show you that, you know, um, okay, uh, OJ walked on the criminal trial, but OJ was found guilty in the civil trial. Yeah. So the system works. The yeah. system works. It's clunky. Um, the, you know, I wish Marsha and the, and the other, uh, uh, people who were the prosecutors, I wish they were better. They, they, they were pretty good. Well, they, look, they, they did not have an unbiased jury. Uh, the judge was a little weak and some of the evidence, uh, you know, uh, that the defense challenged was not robustly, uh, countered by the prosecution in my opinion, they did well, a, a an less than perfect job. I'm not gonna. I don't think that the uh, that the jury was anything but any jury you're ever gonna get. I, I think that jury is more than willing to convict OJ if they felt that the evidence was there. You don't think they nullified? They were talking about you know that Rodney King situation and all of that. After the fact, they said, "Hey, we were gonna do this uh, with uh, you know because of Rodney King, we're gonna liberate OJ." Maybe, maybe. A but, couple of people got mouthy afterwards. But here's the problem: if the if they were convinced, they would have convicted. I, 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 so okay. I, I, I don't you believe think, that. Okay. I do believe that. I okay. think, I think what happened is okay. they were on the fence. They weren't firmly convinced. They had some doubt okay. and they weren't going to go convict. And then there's this other stuff going on too. Okay. I can't say that for sure, but that's my gut. Okay. Um, and well, then, you know, you wonder, you have to ask if it is true that there were other suspects that weren't looked at, 
if it is true that there's this, because I remember um, F. Lee Bailey, Fred Bailey, talking about like the Colombian necktie and how, uh, you know, there was Colombians that were involved in this drug thing. And, you know, and then you had Ron Goldman, who was apparently dealing with the Colombians. Who knows? Wow. But, you know, it's like if that doesn't get explored and gets dismissed out of hand as stupid out of the prosecution. Yeah. And they don't incorporate that into what they're doing. Yeah. They've screwed up. I agree. And if they right. if they tried to fit this case, this square case, into an, uh, an otherwise round hole, yeah, it's going to result in an acquittal. Yeah, disaffected, um, um, you know, ex husband, yeah, or so, ex lover. If yeah, they yeah. they weren't married, right? No, they were boyfriend. Oh, jo, jo, or you mean OJ and Nicole? Yeah, yeah, they were. Married. Were they? Yeah, okay. they were divorced. Okay, they okay. just they had recently divorced. Okay, and you know, but there was a lot of other moving parts to this that I didn't quite realize at the time. And it, now that I look back on it. If if the government is going to choose to ignore certain things and make it about OJ, even if they're doing it with their own notions of righteousness, um, they do it at their own peril. Yeah. Because, you know, the truth has this way of sort of weaseling through all the cracks. Yeah. And uh, if it smells, and the case did smell a little bit. Let me ask you this. One, one factoid that always bothered me, and it was not brought up at trial, the judge wouldn't let it in, was his flight. And normally, flight from the police is allowed to be is allowed to stand as an inference of guilt, but they weren't allowed to present this elaborate attempt, including a disguise, money, Al Cowling's Bronco, that whole police chase at fifty-five miles an hour that went on for I don't know half a day. What? Why wasn't that allowed to be brought in? Did do you? I don't understand? think it. I, I don't know if it was precluded. I thought the prosecutor just didn't want to use it. Oh my God! Really? I I may be I may be wrong, but that's my take on. Oh that. my God! Then that's like grade school stupid. Like, yeah, why mean, wouldn't you have brought that now, in? On the other hand, okay, certainly the jurors knew about it. Yeah, I mean, look, that was on TV for oh, three hours. Right, right. So yeah. I, I can't imagine they didn't know about it. So look, it was a mess. But yeah. <laughs> well, let's. Uh, we got. We're about an hour in. What's yeah. uh, Let's hit the Nuggets. Well, uh, NASCAR is going to have a. Sh- a street race. Now this blows me away. So NASCAR's never had a street race since they used to race on the beaches down at Daytona Beach, if you could call a beach a street. But they're going to have a street race through the city of Chicago, a 2.2 mile course, going to go by Soldier Field and Columbus Avenue and all of these major thoroughfares, uh I guess <laughs> right there, you know, on the lake. Which uh, so that is scheduled for July of next year, uh, if it happens. So uh, that's crazy. Um, Pelosi and her husband, I think, uh, have some splaining to do about uh, her position on the stock trading. I understand that she doesn't want to pass a bill that prevents spouses from investing, you know, outside of a trust. However. It's not too big of a leap for a family member to get a little table talk at dinner uh, from, you know, the congressional person in the family and to know about either pending legislation or some kind of a regulatory decision in advance. So um, I think that whole area of of passing some kind of ethics reform in Congress is way overdue. And then the last thing I have, and, you know, I'm just flying through these is this appeal, here we go again, it's almost like COVID, the liberals want President Biden to declare a climate emergency 
so that he could take upon himself something like he would, like military powers, and bypass the Congress and issue all kinds of orders about how we use our cars, how we air condition and heat our homes, it's, you know how appliances are going to be made. And all of that normally, of course, is done through Congress or delegated to a regulatory agency, at, which then goes through rulemaking, a very detailed process. Uh, the climatists or the greenies uh, want Biden to just, just oh, I guess they see the election coming. They know they're going to lose the House and Senate in all likelihood, and they want Biden to just take the bull by the horns. Yeah, the, the Biden has been smacked down a lot by this court um, or lower federal courts. And I say Biden, I mean the government for trying to take emergency action in the face of like COVID or other things. And what scares me is that once that precedent, once that door opened, like we can do anything because we can through the Department of Health. Because it's an emergency. Because it's an emergency. It's like the Department of Health was regulating like rent. Insanity. Utter insanity. So I I think uh, if Biden does that, you know, it's a, a, my analogy is on stuff like this is always the battle of the bulge in World War II. Yeah. It's like the Germans put all they have into this offensive and, you know, our guys were, were retreating like bloody murder, screaming, like tail between their legs, scared to death. Hadn't all the newbies hadn't dealt with that yet. I'm not criticizing soldiers. I don't mean that. No. But it's like they totally caught us with our pants down. Right. And, you know, then they call up old George down south, Patton. Right. The guy who slapped somebody. Right. And they say, they say, George, can you get up here right. and help us with this bulge? And now he saw it for what it was. And I think so did Eisenhower. Like they, the Nazis with all their best troops, whatever they had in reserve, we're now exposed on three sides. Careful, you're comparing. Well, Nazis were liberals, but I'm just saying, tread carefully, Steve. Oh, right, right. <laughs> so the the Nazis, the SS troops were exposed on three sides. They had poked this bulge into our front lines, thinking they're going to go to Paris and, and negotiate peace or some other nonsense. Right. It wouldn't have happened. So Patton no. comes up, cuts them off from the south. Yeah. Then the weather clears, and we just basically blow them onto oblivion, and they got no army left. And this is, I think, the equivalent here. When the government does stuff like this, they overreach. They go too far. They get exposed on all their flanks. And and I think if the the executive branch better be careful. Yeah. Because the old what is it Youngstown sheet and tube the old case of of uh, was that uh, not I that was uh, Truman yeah. trying to force labor case yeah was trying to force Youngstown sheet and tube to make stuff for Korean War or something like that and wanted to call an emergency and take over. Can't remember the exact details, but the court said no, and 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 I, I think at the end of the day, if they if Biden does this, it's going to suck in the short term. I think this this current court may do something like gut the administrative state, which might be oh the best thing that ever happened. Dude, that'd be a great outcome. And with that, I want to let that stand. That would be an awesome way to finish today's show. The end of the administrative state. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Oh my God! All right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap it up. This is Lawyer Talk off the record, on the air, the round table off the record, on the air. We are bringing this these awesome discussions to you week in and week out, or at least mostly week in and week out. You can tune in uh, at lawyertalkpodcast.com. You can download the podcast. You can subscribe. You can get podcasts wherever you get the podcast. If you want your own podcast, go to channel511.com. We'll hook you up with Brett over at Circle 270 Media. The studio is humming, folks. We are getting things done here, audio and video streaming uh, both live and in Memorex on tape, uh, whatever you need, we can solve it here. Uh, so we're going to wrap it up. Lawyer talk off the record on the air with the round table, at least until now.